You are listening to America's home for stadium news and information. Stadiums USA Radio. Once again, with your ticket to the action, here's Bill Hazen. The recent passing of Mike Illich ends a chapter of advocacy for the city of Detroit. It doesn't close the book, however. Illich's legacy includes the renovation of the city's amazing Fox Theater, along with the Detroit Tigers' Comerica Park and the new Little Caesars Arena, where the Red Wings and Pistons will play. We'll talk about it with writer Kurt Menching. Philadelphia's Connie Mack Stadium, also known as Scheib Park, was torn down generations ago. But now the Philadelphia Inquirer's Frank Fitzgerald learns that this stadium still lives. Groundskeepers throughout baseball are preparing fields for the season ahead. We'll visit with award winner Ben Young and learn how he creates diamond art with a lawnmower. And what plays in Las Vegas won't stay in Las Vegas as Stadiums USA's Mark Madoran returns from Sin City with a firm prediction regarding where the Raiders will call their future home. But first, the stadium's peak with Jeff Schmidt. Jeff? So, as a baseball fan, are you concerned about the length of games? Well, the pace of play issue is heating up in baseball, and it got quite confrontational this week as MLB and the Players Union argued back and forth on what is the best way forward to speed up the game. The only concrete change approved is the elimination of the pitcher throwing to the catcher on intentional walks. But other changes Commissioner Rob Manfred is endorsing, a pitch clock, reduced mound visits, and a higher strike zone, the union, at least initially, is not signing off on. Manfred has said he can implement the changes without the union's approval. Definitely stay tuned on this one. A New Jersey man has been sentenced to five years behind bars for defrauding more than a dozen people in a New York Giants seat license scam. John Gorman admits he conned 16 victims into believing he had MetLife seat licenses for sale. Gorman shares the same name with the Giants director of ticketing. Prosecutors say he used that connection to fake people out. The victims paid in full for the licenses, but never purchased their seats. The scam began after the Giants' 2008 Super Bowl win. We are learning more about a developer's plan to build multiple sports venues in San Diego. Doug Manchester wants to remodel Qualcomm Stadium in hopes of attracting an NFL team or professional soccer franchise. He also wants to build an NBA sports arena. Manchester's plan for Qualcomm flies in the face of previous studies that have deemed the renovation idea as not economically feasible. The NFL has also indicated they want nothing to do with a fixer-upper. And Chargers quarterback Phillip Rivers got a sneak peek at the venue he will be playing in for the next couple of years. Rivers was in L.A. recently for a Clippers basketball game. He and his son Gunner made a stop in Carson to look at the StubHub Center, the 30,000-seat venue the Chargers will soon call home. The only problem was all of the gates were locked. Rivers and his son managed to get inside and view the intimate facility. Rivers said it was kind of like sneaking into a high school football field. 
Bill, that is the very latest. Okay, Jeff, thank you. There is a palpable state of sadness in Detroit right now with the recent passing of Mike Illich. What he has meant for the city is uh, of huge interest, particularly right now with the work on a new arena and the total rebuild of a section on the near north side of downtown Detroit. We're going to visit with a guy who knows all about this and what it means, Kurt Mensching. He is the news desk manager for SB Nation. He also is involved with the SB Nation Detroit Tigers blog. You can also read him in the Detroit News. Kurt, it is great to visit with you. Give us a feeling of how the city is reacting to this, what it means to the people who have been there, who have seen Mike's contributions over such a great period of time. Well, you know, I think when the news came out, I think the the first thought from everyone was shock. And everyone knows about, you know, Mike Illich's health issues. Mm-hmm. So it's not like this was a surprising thing that came out of the blue. But there's still, you know, a sense of shock and a sense of sadness in Detroit. He's done a lot for the city, both from the standpoint of what he's done downtown with uh, the arena and the uh, baseball stadium, and also, you know, Fox Theater. And also from the sports standpoint, he put a lot of money into the Detroit Red Wings and won some championships put a lot of money into the Detroit Tigers and sadly fell short. So on a whole, you know, he, he was just a guy who did a lot in the city and uh, was kind of a face and did a lot of things in the city people didn't even learn about until after his death, too. So he was just an important figure to us. You know, I think probably the greatest legacy that Mike Illich could ever hope for is the area which is currently being renovated on the near north side. And, of course, part of that work is done. This is a stadium corridor. All of the city's major arenas are going to be right there. He really took to heart the idea of renovating uh, it, the entire community by pulling it all up. A lot of economists believe that is not possible. Mike believed it was. What are you seeing there right now, Kurt? Is Mike right? Yeah, certainly in the downtown area, the midtown area, uh, you know, yeah, he, they definitely, and it wasn't just Mike. Here's Dan Gilbert, too, and Dan is sometimes a good name and sometimes a bad name, depending who you talk to in the city. But uh, Mike was there first, of course, uh, all the way back to the Fox Theater that he uh, rehabbed in, what, 1990, you know, decades ago. Mm-hmm. Since then, obviously, Comerica Park is pretty much across from the Fox Theater. And what you're referring to now with the uh, the new arena, Little Caesars Arena, is what they're calling the District Detroit. And that's kind of an area between downtown and midtown. Uh, there wasn't much going on. If you drove down Woodward in the past, you know, it, it's kind of a sad area. And the Illich family is putting like a billion dollars of their own money into trying to turn this into a neighborhood, you know, try and bridge two kind of nicer areas with the, you know, Little Caesars Arena is going to be the central focus of this. But there's lots of new retail that's planned for this, new apartments, new condominiums. There's just a big square where a lot is going on. He saw the future. He saw what was going to happen. And just putting the money in there, it's good for Detroit. It's also good for the Illich family, because if, if you look at this, you know, this isn't just a charity. They're investing their money, and they're hoping to see a return on this. And I do think that's going to happen. What is the impact of Little Caesars Arena, when completed, likely to be? Uh, well, the, it's going to be open this fall, and... One of the big impacts that I think is worth mentioning is it got the Detroit Pistons to move home. 
I don't know if that's really thought of outside of Detroit as being a big deal because, you know, there's already a basketball franchise in the area. But the Detroit Pistons should be playing in the city of Detroit. They should never have been 25 miles north of the city out there in the suburbs. Having one of those Caesars Arena and the Illiches and Tom Gores kind of get together and bring the Pistons back downtown, that is absolutely huge and wonderful for us. We're definitely seeing a lot of things that a decade ago Detroit didn't have. You know, Kurt, when the Palace was constructed in Auburn Hills. Uh, I used to cover the NBA on a fairly regular basis. I was one of the first people in there to do a broadcast remote, and I'll never forget it. I walked in there. It was an eye-opener. That arena revolutionized professional sports. Now we're going to see its successor, the Little Caesars Arena, and this arena is going to try to do the same thing, but in a different way, and they're going to do it by trying to reach out to the community, by finding a way for the arena to embrace the community around it. That is the design, as I understand it, therefore allowing for all of this residential growth that's going to be around it. Do you have a sense of that now as they're working? Are the people really aware that that's what's going on? Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. Certainly, certainly. I mean, you, you, you can see it just driving through, you know, the downtown area where there used to be, you know, old buildings or old houses that were falling down. The new condominiums are going up all over the place. Uh, Brush Park, which is just north of uh, Comerica Park. Brush Park is, it had a bunch of old houses. And again, they're, they're beautiful old houses, but a lot of disrepair there. It's going to be a mixture of, you know, apartments, condominiums, some retail in there, too. You drive down there, you can't miss it. it. You know, there there is so much construction going on in this area right now. Well, Kurt, it is a fascinating story and a wonderful time, a sad time, but a wonderful time to reflect on a guy who has truly made a difference, Mike Illich. And uh, I want to thank you for taking time to visit with us and talk a little bit about this. Uh, yeah, you're welcome, and uh, thanks for having me on. Kurt mentioning our guest, and Kurt is involved with a number of things uh, in Detroit, and he can be read regularly in the Detroit News. Stay tuned. Now we'll be coming back with more of Stadiums USA right here on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. In previous shows, we've talked a little bit about one of the most iconic baseball parks in history, Philadelphia's Connie Mack Stadium, also known as Scheib Park. And when we trace its history, we unearth some truly amazing stories. 
And our guest, Frank Fitzpatrick of the Philadelphia Inquirer, is a first-rate storyteller. He is an award-winning sports writer. You have to know the town pretty well if you know this story as well as he does. He had a recent article in the Inquirer talking about Scheib Park and a patch of grass that lives on uh, and is a living memorial, if you will, in a sense, to that wonderful baseball park. Frank, first of all, thank you. This is a fascinating story. How did you get wind of this? Well, you know, I've written a lot about Connie Mack Stadium and Shy Park over the years. People, you know, love to tell stories about their experiences with old ballparks. There's something about baseball and ballparks and being with your dad that, that sort of is etched forever in your memory. So whenever I would write about the, the stadium, I would get a number of emails from people, you know, and, and basically relating their stories, their memories about Connie Mack Stadium. In one of these, just in passing, it wasn't the subject of uh, of his email, but he mentioned that he had planted this piece of the stadium that he had taken on the during the last night at, at the stadium and uh, planted it out front of uh, where he lived at Haverford College. And I thought, oh, this is interesting. So I, uh, I agreed to meet him there, and he showed me where the patch was, and he told me the story, and it was just a fascinating little incident. Part of the story that you tell is the final night at the stadium and the wild mess that that turned into, and that is how this uh, gentleman, I, na- I think his name is Durant, uh, ended up with this piece of turf. Jeez, they tore the whole place apart, Frank, and I don't think anybody was ready for that. No, you know, it, it, things were sort of went wrong right from the beginning. The, the, the Phillies originally, when Veterans Stadium was being built, were supposed to move out of Connie Mack Stadium after the 1969 season. So in preparation for the new stadium and new promotions and a new everything, they hired Bill Giles, away, who was the PR guy with the Houston Astros. And Bill had made quite a reputation down there for exploding scoreboards and that kind of thing. And so they brought him in, and it turns out the stadium went a little slower, the construction went a little slower than anticipated. Mm-hmm. So Bill stayed here. Uh, he, here he was at Connie Mack Stadium with really nothing to promote but this, you know, this ballpark that by then was falling apart. So for the last game, he, he decided he would have kind of a throwback night, and he had the ushers and the grounds crew dress up in uh, 1909, which was when the stadium built in, in those era costumes. And he, you know, he invited everybody to come for a goodbye to the to the ballpark. They were going to have a birthday cake, and a helicopter was going to come in after the game and take home plate and deposit it at at the Veterans Stadium. Well, anyway, the, the, so the the place was sold out, but it wasn't so much a result of the promotion as it was people wanting the souvenir hunt. And so they came uh, equipped with tools, and as the game wore on, you you know, the noise grew louder and louder. Yes, people started unscrewing seats and. <laughs> you know, carving up whatever they could of the stadium to, to take home. And it was just chaos. And when the game ended, everybody flooded the field. The helicopter couldn't land. People stole the bases. And um, and some people started ripping up the grass. Um, and this gentleman that I spoke to was one of them. And, and the funny thing, Bill, is once that story appeared, I got at least three other messages from people who said, I've got a piece of Connie Mac Stadium, you know, growing in my backyard or I planted one at such and such a place. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it was, the, the sentiment was, let's get something from this stadium, um, you know, no matter what. I, I, and I think that's a result of the deep connections people have to baseball and to the places where they're played. I mean, they want 
they they want to they want to validate their own memories and they'll do it in any way they can as we saw that night the interesting thing and i've talked with writers who have worked there it was really a beautiful park you had some great views of the action in there but mm-hmm. i think the most significant thing about it was it was a revolutionary ballpark at the time of construction this ballpark was the beginning of the new steel and concrete era for parks was it not that's right. When it was built in 1909, it was the first of the steel and concrete. Very quickly, many others were added. I mean, you know, Wrigley Field and uh, Fenway Park and Detroit Stadium, uh, Tiger Stadium. Yes. Uh, they all were added really, really rapidly after Connie Mack came online. And uh, so in that sense, it was historic. And, uh, you know, in, in many ways, it was, a, it was a beautiful old ballpark. I mean... By the time I got to go, it was 50 years old, and you know you had seats that many of the seats had obstructed views because of the rafters. But the, the field itself was so beautiful, and and the symmetry of the place, the uh, just the way the scoreboard and the grandstand came together, and the outline of the you know the sky against the fence, the, you know the, the what you could see over the wall, it was just it was just a just a beautiful old place, especially looking back on it now. But like anything else, uh, you know, in subsequent decades, it started to to fall apart, and once the Phillies decided they were going to move somewhere else. They stopped investing in it, stopped maintaining it, and you know, and the, and the place fell apart. And and more problematic than that was, you know, that the neighborhood started to go downhill. There wasn't any parking around really, mm-hmm. uh, and people, you know, didn't want to come there. So yeah, but it was at its time. It, you're right. It was a very revolutionary ballpark. You have your own story with that ballpark from your youth, and Frank, I kind of liken you to a news anchor that we've had in Chicago for many years by the name of Walter Jacobson. He was a ball boy at Wrigley Field as a young guy, and for you, you also worked at uh, Scheib Park, Connie Mack Stadium, during your youth. Yeah, you know, I had an uncle who lived just around the corner, and he was in charge of the program cells at the stadium. So the summer of 1966, when I would have been 16, I got a job there. Um, I would sell programs and yearbooks uh, before the game. You would make uh, you know, make a penny and a half on every program you sold for 15 cents, and you would make a dime on every dollar yearbook that you sold. And then during the game, I would switch and sell uh, Cokes and sodas. And, and 1960 was a... I mean, you know, the, the the Phillies were half decent, but but I was a huge Dick Allen fan, and he was he had a great year that year. He hit 40 home runs, and whenever he would come to, to bat, I would sit down with my cokes up in a remote section of the stadium where there was no one else, and just watch him bat. And I would drink one of the cokes as I did, and I as a result, I never made much money that summer, but I had a great time watching. Uh, watching Allen hit home runs. Oh, Matt, did it inspire you to go into writing? Is that where you got your love of the profession? I'm not so sure. I've, I, I kind of always wanted to be a writer, even, even from the time I was a little kid. But it, it, it certainly uh, enriched my love of baseball and of the Phillies and of and in being in an old stadium of, of sports history. And, uh, you know, it's something I've carried through and hopefully refined over the years. And now, you know, each Sunday I write a, a column about it focuses on Philadelphia's sports history, and it's mm-hmm. uh, it's just an endless topic. People say, "How do you how do you find enough things to write about?" And I tell them, you know, I could go a hundred years with a different topic every Sunday. There's so much that happened in the past that either we don't know about, or we don't know enough about, or we wish we knew more about. And sports didn't spring, you know, full flower out of the ground. I mean, it, it, there there's a history to it. There's a growth to it. There's an evolution to it. 
Frank, it's really great to visit with you. Congratulations on this story and, of course, your continued work with the Philadelphia Inquirer. And um, uh, thanks for taking time to visit with us. My pleasure, Bill. Frank Fitzpatrick, our guest, award-winning sports writer from the Philadelphia Inquirer. Now, when we return, we'll talk shop. Mark Madoran standing by. We'll go to the water cooler and find out what's going on in the stadium world. That is next on SB Nation Radio. How would you like to get all of your favorite NBA team's merchandise delivered straight to your doorstep? Check out fanessentials.net. All you do is pick your favorite sports team, and every month you get your team's gear shipped right to your door. They find the sports gear so you don't have to. Each fan box comes packed full with amazing gear. It makes a great gift idea for any sports fan. Prices start at just $34.99. Visit fanessentials.net and use promo code STADIUM and check out for 30% off your first month. Visit fanessentials.net to get all of the essentials you need. Time to get at it once again. Time to talk shop as we examine this week's stadium headlines. And for that, we welcome in Mark Madoran, president of Stadiums USA. StadiumsUSA.com is your one-stop shop for stadium news and information. And don't just stop there. You can listen to podcasts of our program, too. And you can test your stadium knowledge at our quiz site. And uh, that should be fun. You've seen me swing and a miss several times (laughs) on quiz questions. Everything is available to you at stadiumsusa.com. That gentleman laughing in the background was Mark Medora, and he's all set to go. All right, Mark, you are fresh off a trip to Las Vegas, doggone it. You bring back some stadium knowledge as it relates to Sin City, which is very interesting. Let's start with the Raiders and the funding for that new dome stadium that could possibly be their new home. What's the latest? Well, the citizens of Vegas are fired up about the Raiders. Employees at all the sports books believe it's a completely done deal. They said, don't worry about uh, Adelson pulling out. It's it's done. Here's the, here's the way it's going to work. First, with Adelson's money out of the equation, two things happen. One is that the funds that need to be replaced, two banks have already stepped up and said they have an interest in participating. Much of the consideration is the rapidly increasing value of sports franchises. You've noticed that uh, with the Marlins for sale, the numbers they're throwing around as far as value, that raises the the level of all the boats in the harbor. And they, they know the value of the Raiders could potentially be up well over $3 billion if they move to Vegas. So they're not concerned about getting their money back. Secondly, because of Adelson's casino connections, there were some rule changes needed by the NFL owners to allow casino owners to also be involved with NFL teams. Hmm. With Adelson gone, this isn't necessary. So this removes another very large hurdle that we were anticipating having to jump over to get the Raiders to Vegas. As far as Vegas goes, there are two sites that are possible. I looked at both. Both are south of Tropicana Avenue for people that know Vegas. Mm -hmm. The first is west of Interstate 15, just south of Mandalay Bay. It's a vacant site. It's near the Strip, but it's off the Strip. It's also near the airport, 
it has excellent connections to the freeway, so it'll be easy to get in now the uh, the stadium parking lots. Uh, the traffic flow shouldn't be an issue. The other thing is the second site is the Bally High Golf Course, which is just south of the Mandalay Bay uh, complex, and that's on the Strip. So either site would work. And I did read that they are talking about extending the monorail that goes up and down behind the hotels. They could extend that all the way to the stadium. So you could stay up as far as the Wynn Hotels and then take the monorail all the way down the stadium south of Mandalay Bay. That would work great. Uh, It appears like everybody in Vegas says the reason that the legislators approve $750 million is the casino owners put so much pressure on them to Mm. bring that team to town. So they definitely want an NFL team, and this looks like the way it's going to happen. Well, and there's another arena also. This is a completed arena and a beauty, the T-Mobile Arena. That will be the future home of the NHL's Golden Knights, the Las Vegas Golden Knights. They held an open house this week. How did it go? Well, the Golden Knights, the NHL's newest offering, and the first real major sports team in Las Vegas held a 24-hour open house at the T-Mobile Arena. Of course, it's Vegas, and you know they don't keep track of the time, so they decided to have the open house go 24 hours complete. <laughs> and actually, they had quite a few visitors, and every hour they awarded someone with season tickets. So the arena looks amazing. It's a beautiful glass entryway building with big, wide concourses. The fans that attended the open house were encouraged to see the arena from their seats, but they were also encouraged to go down on the arena floor and grab a hockey stick. It was, wasn't iced over, though. It was just the floor. They had a very successful open house, and we're going to wait and see how things go. But this is the first real major sports team in Sin City, so it's going to be interesting to watch them play it out. Mark, another of the NHL's Stadium Series games will be played this weekend. These are the annual hockey contests that are played outdoors. They're played in NFL stadiums and Major League ballparks. And the site for this one between the Penguins and the Flyers is Pittsburgh's Heinz Field. And this is a little bit of a problem, don't you know? This last week, we had very high temperatures throughout this region of the country, and uh, that is not... Not uh, very compatible with hockey. What's the story here, Mark? Well, the NHL Stadium Series has been captivating the imagination of fans and players. And Heinz Field has been used for it before, and it's been very successful. Outdoor arenas create a whole different set of problems, but the league has set of technicians that do nothing but these Stadium Series games, and they've done enough of them now. They understand what the problems are. As you mentioned, this week has been tough on them because they're dealing with extremely warm temperatures. But they've done that before. They've had uh, stadium series games in uh, Los Angeles where it's been warm. So it does stress their equipment, but they can handle it. But the thing that they can't handle is things like heavy rain and uh, extreme sunlight. Sunshine is really bad for the ice, Mm -hmm. and they have to put blankets on it to to keep it uh, uh, cool to make sure that the uh, sunlight is reflected away from the ice. So this has been a really busy week for those technicians, and they are keeping their fingers crossed. They get a little better weather, and uh, they can avoid the rain because I guess rain is one of the things that they just can't deal with very easily. 
Very good, Mark. Well, the door is open. Let's hop in the Wayback Machine and take a look at some important dates in stadium history. What do you have? Well, this week in 1933, two major stadium changes in pro football. Hmm. The hash marks are moved in 10 yards and goalposts are placed at the goal line. I know this sounds weird for some of the people listening to the show that are that are younger and don't realize it. Many years ago, professional football was played with the goalposts at the goal line. Now, you think to yourself, how did they do that? Yeah, they ran in the goalposts quite a bit. <laughs> when you ran a post pattern, you got to take a left right at the goal line or you're going to be uh, coming in contact with the posts. Uh, the goalposts actually stayed there from 1933 until they were moved to the back of the end zone in 1974. In 1958, the Los Angeles Coliseum Committee approved a two-year contract to allow the Dodgers to play in the Coliseum while Dodger Stadium is being built. And, of course, we remember the 1959 series was played in the L.A. Coliseum against the Chicago White Sox. Oh, do I remember that one. Well, very good, Mark. And uh, before we call it a segment here, let's go with a little Stadiums USA trivia. And uh, there used to be a ballpark where the field was warm and green. And here we go, Bill. Oracle Arena in Oakland is the oldest venue in the NBA. Now, we know it's being replaced. Uh, they're going to be building on the other side of the bay. Mm -hmm. The Warriors are planning a new arena in San Francisco. But it's interesting to note which Warriors player holds the single game record for most points scored at the Oracle Arena. Is it Steph Curry, Chris mm -hmm. Mullen, mm -hmm. Rick Barry, mm -hmm. or Wilt Chamberlain? Well, I'll tell you, Mark, I know the answer to this. It's definitely Rick Barry, the, uh, the guy who played at Miami. Uh, interesting thing about Rick, several things about Rick. He actually played for two teams in that same arena, not only for the Golden State Warriors, but also for the Oakland Oaks of the ABA, who also played in the same building. And by the way, Rick Barry was the last guy to shoot his free throws underhanded. You are correct. Rick Barry did score 64 points in a game in the arena in 1974. So we have to count this as a W. Yeah. For you, <laughs> and uh, fans, uh, keep your minds on this very closely. You may not see it happen again for a while. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Mark, thank you. As always, have fun, and we'll check in next week. Enjoy the week, Bill. You too, Mark. Mark Madoran, We Talk Shop. Now, stay tuned because coming up, groundskeepers are busy at ballparks across America as they prepare baseball diamonds for the upcoming season. We check in with the gentleman who works in Memphis for the AAA Redbirds. That's next on SB Nation Radio. Final preparations for baseball are going on throughout the country, and that means this is a very busy time for groundskeepers, and we're going to visit with one of them, one of the best. Ben Young, head groundskeeper for the Memphis Redbirds, the AAA affiliate of the St. Louis Cardinals, and he oversees the grounds work at the beautiful AutoZone Park, a lovely ballpark in Memphis. Ben, I know you're on the field right now as we catch up with you. What are the priorities? What are you up 
up to these days? Well, we're, we're actually doing quite a few renovations at the time. Uh, we're, we're completely installing a new surface here, so we're, uh, we currently do not have grass. So. Oh, really? Tell us about it. Been planned for a while, but I guess we finally kind of were able to pull the trigger on it, and uh, mm-hmm. uh, we ripped out all the existing turf that had been here oh, since we opened the park 15 years ago and uh, uh, resurfaced everything, and we are going to be laying sod here uh, by the end of the week. Is there a change in the actual grass compound that you're going to be using? Are you, are you changing fundamentally uh, the type of grass that you install there? No, it'll, it'll be the same thing. It's a Bermuda grass overseeded with rye. Um, just over time, the uh, spoil that it's in will, will get compacted and get uh, blocked up, and, and it's time for a change, and we're, we're kind of starting fresh here. You are located in the Mid-South, so that means you get a pretty good mixture of all kinds of weather. It's nice and warm when things let up, and that warmth continues a little bit longer than it does in the northern climates. But then again, you can also get some very tricky and tough uh, winter weather. And in recent years, we've seen that the Mid-South has been hit with some pretty significant storms. In light of that, what type of grass actually works best in that climate. We're going on the right path here with the Bermuda and uh, overseeded with rye. The Bermuda grass is a warm season grass, so in the summer it really takes off and, and holds up well. Um, we overseed it with a rye grass, which does better in cooler temperatures, and that's uh, what keeps it green kind of in, uh, in the spring and fall. You know, it, it's a little bit tricky having to overseed and that, but it, the goal, end goal is for it always to be looking nice, and uh, typically it does. Tell us about your crew, what it's actually like. If we were to be transported to Memphis and out on the AutoZone field playing surface with you right now, what would we see? A typical game day, let's go with. Um, we get in early. We, we come out and we'll, we'll cut the grass daily. And then uh, really repairs from the night before, um, just mounds and plates and making sure they're up to spec. Uh, packed in tight, moisture management on the infield, um, the infield dirt, and uh, making sure that's drug out and smooth and ready to go. Typically, a team will come out and, and do some early work or batting practice, um, so we'll have set up and tear down for that and kind of uh, working with the coaches to see what they need and assist them any way we can, and then uh, tear down and set up for the game. And once the game's over, that the game's kind of our downtime because not much we can do there. And when the game's over, we'll clean up the best we can and do it again the next day. Ben, I think there are a few things that are more beautiful than a beautifully manicured baseball field. And we're seeing more and more sophistication as to how these fields look. And a lot of it has to do with the patterns of the mowing, uh, how you're able to create lines and everything from lines to logos. Now, you've worked a lot with pattern mowing. In fact, you've won an award from the Sports Turf Managers Association for your work in this area. Tell us about how you do this very special thing. Well, it, it, a lot of it's uh, planning. My girlfriend's actually an art major, so I let her help me out with uh, picking designs and things. But um, we'll lay it out on, on paper, see, see what looks cool. Um, really only have two colors to work with, light green and dark green. And uh, we'll, we'll set up some interesting designs if we can. And uh, a lot of times we like to keep it uh, just normal and, and uh, something that's efficient for when we're mowing. What is it that creates the difference in color? How is that achieved so that one area looks brighter than the other area does when you do this special pattern mowing? 
Well, it's all about the direction you mow. Um, the mowers have rollers on them uh, on each reel, so whichever direction you're mowing will actually knock the grass down in that direction. So depending on the way you look at it is the direction the grass is knocked down, so you kind of get that shading effect. And the, the lighter areas and the dark areas where the uh, – the sun either hits it good or, or gives it some good shade. And it, mm-hmm. I guess you need a nice sunny day for it to really pop the most. If I understand this correctly, the turf that is mowed and that it kind of lays down in one direction looks one way, and then the other direction it looks another. If I were to view it from behind home plate, say, it would look one way. Would it be different if I went out, say, to center field and sat in the center field stands? Would it still look the same, or would it be exactly the opposite? No, you, you got it. Uh, you go out to center field, and everything's going to be reversed. <laughs> what's light was dark, and what's dark was light. By the way, tell us about the actual competition. I didn't even know that there was such a thing as a competition. Do you apply to that, or or does the Sports Turf Managers Association just keep an eye on it, and they say, you know, we've been around to all the parks this year like we always do, and I really like that they were doing it at this place. Tell us about that process. <laughs> yeah, well, it's all done through the STMA, the Sports Turf Managers Association, Mm-hmm. Um, I believe it's been two years now they've they've been running it, and uh, basically they will put out a, a memo and you submit your uh, a, a nice picture of your field. And luckily, I got the most votes this year, but there there were a lot of good looking fields in the uh, in the running this year. Well, it sure is great <laughs> to visit with you, Ben. A lot of fun, and uh, you have a great great job. And uh, I assume you have the green thumb necessary. That is a true requisite of that job. I'm sure you have that. So we want to. Wish you all the best and a lot of success. Hey, I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. It is a pleasure. Ben Young is our guest. He is the head groundskeeper for the Memphis Redbirds AAA affiliate, new to the scene at beautiful AutoZone Park in Memphis. A must-check out if you are in the area. That's our program for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Stay tuned. We have a full day of sports coverage coming up on SB Nation Radio. Oh.